I am on a mission to help organizations drive long-term success and results by implementing an unshakable transformation model. This model puts the employee at the center and works outward to support every aspect of the human experience in the workplace. Welcome to the Human Method Podcast. I am your host, Megan Bond, founder and CEO of the Bond Consulting Group. This podcast is designed to explore incredible guests as experts in a variety of professions and experiences to learn more about the tools that will transform an organization one person at a time. If you are seeking to improve yourself and how you live your life, or an organizational leader seeking to make a larger impact on your company through culture change, then this podcast is for you. If you are interested in learning more about personal or organizational transformation, I would love to connect with you. You can chat with me today at www.thebondconsultinggroup.com. Be sure to subscribe and get easy access to future episodes. Thank you and enjoy today's episode of The Human Method. Welcome everyone to today's episode of The Human Method and this is a very special episode for me. I'm so excited for our guest um, because she and I have had a personal experience together um, under the role of, of her as a life coach and this experience was so rich and exceptional for me, and she was really, through the tools that she uses as a life coach, was really able to help me move through some stuff in my life that I thought it would be a great gift to all of you to bring her to this space to, to share some of these tools um, with a wider and larger audience so that all of you can take some of, some of her tips and, and begin to apply them in your lives. Additionally, um, I do want to hit on the fact, before before we get into introductions, I want to hit on the fact that the term life coach seems to be so ubiquitous these days. Everywhere I turn, I'm talking to someone who, who's just left their job to become a life coach. And, um, you know, some are definitely better than others. And it's really hard to go through that filtration process of finding not only the right person for you and that you trust, but somebody who has the experience, the credentials, the ability to ask the right questions. So there's so many layers to being a good life coach. Uh, while so often people simply, simply slap that title um, ahead of their name and claim to be an expert in something that they may not really be that great at. And I can vouch for this woman that's joining us today and say she is one of the good ones. She is one that really knows her stuff and, um, as I said, had a tremendous impact on my life experience in, in, in one session. Um, and then we've continued to work together since then. So I am thrilled to introduce you to Molly Kramer. And Molly has such a unique and interesting story that, Molly, I thought it would be best for you to intro yourself. So I'm going to hand it over to you. Thank you, Megan. Um, that was an amazing introduction. And yeah, I, I'll just jump right into my background. Um, so I grew up in San Diego, I'm living in Pittsburgh now with my husband and my two little girls. But I grew up um, in San Diego in a little beach town called Del Mar. Um, my family lived in a big mansion on the bluffs overlooking the ocean. It was pretty idyllic. It was um, everything you could want. We had financial wealth. Um, I would say we had emotional wealth. We had a really loving family. I always felt super safe and happy. Um, and I, I can't express how, how happy it was, how joyous I felt. Um, all the way up until when I was 12 years old, um, my father died. He was 45 and he suffered a massive heart attack while he was surfing. Um, he had had a small heart attack before, but it was treated and he was okay. But the next one, um, yeah, and he died and he was only 45. So he left uh, me and my two sisters and my mom to kind of fend for ourselves. 
Um, and it was really hard for my mom, who was a stay at home mom and all of us, um, obvious for obvious reasons. But, you know, we lost all of our money. Uh, he was a real estate developer. He actually developed golf courses and so made a lot of money doing that in Southern California. He also came from a very wealthy background. So we, we had that, but he had used all that money in real estate. And unfortunately, around the time he died, it was a recession. So all of the real estate ventures he were in were kind of underwater. Um, so it was, it was very tough. My mom had to be, go back to teaching. Uh, she was a teacher before she met my dad. And we kind of had to move out of our house. Um, we had to start renting. It was just a really hard time. And as I grew up, I really started to notice a stark contrast between my life and the lives of my friends around me who were still living that idyllic Southern California wealthy lifestyle. And I had somehow dropped out of it and I wasn't a part of it anymore. And I just, I just felt so many negative feelings about that. Um, I just started to form this massive form of self-hate and self-blame. And I started to just engage in these really self-destructive behaviors, um, including, you know, drinking and some eating disorders and uh, drug use. And it just all, you know, culminated in just this very, very negative experience that I was having throughout uh, middle school and then later high school. Um, and then it actually finally came to a head when I was about 17 years old and I got a DUI. I spent the night in jail and I really started to realize how out of control my life was. Um, and it was really only after that that I started doing some self-exploration. Um, I went to you know a local Barnes and Noble and started to devour all the self-help books that I could, um, thinking that maybe these books can help me. Maybe they could magically fix me. Um, because I just felt so broken. I just felt like this wasn't the life that I should be living. Um, so I really, yeah, I dove into the self-help books and I actually, I did make it to college. And in college is where I really found my passion. Um, I took a philosophy course and I just loved it. I just felt so passionate about it. And I decided that I wanted to be a philosophy major and just dove into it for the next four years. And I just loved the, you know, philosophy. It means the love of wisdom. And that really is what self-help is. It's, you know, finding your truth, finding wisdom in life to help you navigate your world. So I, um, yeah, I, I buried myself in philosophy books um, and I continued to start, uh, you know, continue to probe myself with all of the self-help work that I've been doing on the side as well. And then I graduated um, with a philosophy degree and at that time in 2003, life coaching wasn't a thing. Um, I wish it was because I would have jumped right into it. But um, with a philosophy degree, I wasn't really sure what I could have would do with it. So I naturally went to law school, um, like, like other philosophy majors out there. So I went to law school um, in California and graduated, passed the California bar, and I worked in um, the public sector first as a criminal prosecutor, and then later in the private sector as a litigator. Um, and I, I loved it too. Um, I loved being a lawyer. Um, I loved the confidence it gave me. Uh, but I also started to feel after the years that it was slowly kind of wearing on my relationships with my, in my personal life. Um, I, I kind of, I've heard this, um, term coined lawyer brain and <laughs> versus somebody with a normal brain, but it is during law school, they kind of teach you how to think like a lawyer. And in that process, you become very analytical and you become, um, someone who likes to catastrophize because it's always, you know, when you're working up law, uh, cases, it's always the worst case scenario. That's why they're in court. You know, something terrible happened and they're suing another person. So my lawyer brain was always turned on. And this was wrecking havoc in my relationships, if you can imagine. Uh, my relationships at home, even my relationships at work. Um, and so I started to notice that I, become, I was becoming this very aggressive person in my personal life, like I was in my life as a lawyer. Um, 
and I, I don't think I mentioned I was a litigator. So, you know, it's constantly this back and forth with plaintiff's counsel, uh, back and forth with other attorneys, uh, very aggressive. And you can't really turn that off. Or I didn't know the tools to turn that off. Um, and so as the years passed, I'm going to kind of fast forward. I, I had another tragic event happen. Um, I had a daughter in 2015 and um, I got pregnant with my second child uh, in 2017. And in January of 2018, I experienced a stillbirth of my son who um, I was eight months pregnant and there was no medical explanation. Um, the doctors had no idea what happened. I was completely fit. Um, there just wasn't any explanation. They ran a lot of tests and they didn't have an answer for me. It just, they said that sometimes this happens. And the, the grief I felt was excruciating because it felt like the grief that I had not processed from when my dad died, you know, some 20 years before was all coming to a head and it was all coming up and it just felt so overwhelming. And around this time is when I, when I decided that I really was going to do some serious work on myself and I was going to go back to the self-help books and I was going to figure this out because I wasn't going to allow myself to self-destruct like I did before, 20 years before. So I really started doing the work. This is when I started um, uh, the self-coaching. I found Brooke Castillo in the Life Coach School. Uh, I found her podcast and I just started listening and devouring all of that, all of her content. And that really helped me um, really understand that I could actually feel these feelings and process these feelings, the grief, the, um, uh, you know, you name it, the negativity, the uh, guilt, uh, all of that. I could process it and I could let it go without it actually really affecting my life really affecting um, how I was handling um, all the other things in my life. And it was just this huge aha moment that I didn't have to wallow in this for years. And I didn't have to let it take me down. Like I felt like when my dad died, that kind of took me down. So I really jumped into this uh, self-coaching and the techniques and the concepts. And I just dedicated myself to that. Um, and it actually turned out that when COVID hit, um, I was going through another kind of career transition and I was making some big decisions in my life and I made the decision to become a life coach. Um, and so I underwent the certification, became a certified life coach. And now it's just an absolute dream come true, um, working with clients and working with the struggles that they have, um, especially around relationships because I've seen so much transformation in the relationships that um, I've worked on with myself, with my husband, with my kids, with my mother <laughs> was a big one. Um, I definitely, I, I, I've seen the external um, results transpire because of the inner work that I've been doing. So that's, um, <laughs> that's a lot, but um, yeah, that's, that's kind of where I was and where I am. <clears throat> well, first of all, thank you for, for sharing. I know that there are a lot of personal moments in that share. I also think that that's what makes you so great at what you do. You've been through stuff and you've been able to use various tools to kind of dig yourself out of a hole um, on a, a couple of different occasions to, to get to an even better place than where you were before any, any tragedy or, or grief had, had taken place. The first place I want to start with this is this idea of emotion. Because I feel like when things are going well for most of us um, and things are pretty status quo, it's very easy to do this work and to think about how we would handle a, a, you know, a situation that was you know, undesired or um, how we would respond to something. And it's quite different when you are, the moment catches you off guard. What helped you move from maybe the shock or the surprise of something um, that caught you off guard, that, that maybe put you in a different emotional state? Um, how were you able to move through that in a healthy way? Because it looks like, just looking at your history, 
uh, when you found yourself in jail at 17 with a DUI, you still moved through that in a way where you went to the Barnes and Noble and you got the books. Um, and then with the stillbirth in 2018, while the grief was excruciating, you were still able to realize, okay, I'm also dealing with my dad's death and emotions I haven't yet dealt with. And it's time for me to make a healthier transition. So what, what, what was going on that helped you get to that healthy place rather than digging yourself into a deeper hole? Yeah, I mean, that's, that is a great question. And I think if I could like put that in a bottle and sell it, <laughs> I'd be a millionaire. But um, yeah, I think, I, I think everyone kind of has a little bit of that in them. And I will say, you know, when I, when I was struggling back when I was in high school, and even after that DUI, I mean, the struggles continued. It wasn't just this like light bulb. And I read a couple self-help books and I was magically cured. I would love that too. Um, but I think it is, I think it's a culmination. I think, I, I, you know, this life is that journey and it's a culmination of, you know, being inspired to go to the Barnes and Noble and listening to your intuition to go grab that book and to read that book. And maybe that book will help you with one little thing that's been going on in your life to kind of move you to the next stage and to move you to the next stage and to get that deeper awareness of how you can more easily get out of that emotional turmoil. And so I will say that it has been a process. It's been, you know, since, since that time uh, when I got the DUI and, and the time I experienced the stillbirth, you know, moving in and out of those emotions was still really, was still really difficult. Um, but the tools that I learned along the way, and a lot of it came from, you know, the work of Byron Katie and Pema Children and Eckhart Tolle and Wayne Dyer, you know, all the like self-help gurus, the little nuggets of wisdom I got from all of them were kind of culminating in more of this like overall philosophy. And this overall philosophy was feelings are a really big, important um, part of this life. And your thoughts are an even bigger part of this life because they precede the feeling. Um, and so learning this and continuing to learn this and using um, a tool that I'll talk about later that's really helpful in my practice is the thing that I use now to experience those emotions so that I don't go back into that area of just being stuck um, or that area of just reacting or avoiding my emotions or any of the things that lead to you know, what I like to call the net negative consequences of those emotions. Um, so, yeah, I think that kind of answers your question. Yeah, it definitely does. And it, it leads me to another question, which is in, in moments in your life as you, you know, hit a wall of resistance or, or ran into challenges, did you find that you had any core tendencies that you would fall into that um, – were your drivers for, for moving forward rather than backward. Yeah, I like that. Like a core tendency definitely would be, you know, one thing that comes to mind is definitely that resilience that like, I can get through this. I'm not going to get stuck here. Um, having that resilience, I think definitely helped me in that tendency, but that resilience was preceded by a thought. And the thought I think was as simple as, you know, I know my ability I know I have the capacity to get through this. And that actually creates that feeling of resilience. And that feeling of resilience is what will drive my next action. And that next action coming from that more positive feeling is going to be something that's more positive and that will get me the results that I want. It'll get me to not stay stuck if there is something challenging coming up in my life. Yeah, and the way that you're talking about it, it is very clear that you've done the work on understanding the the, the science behind this work, the, the neuroscience, if you will, behind our thoughts. Um, and I think for someone who hasn't gone that far, is that advanced in this work, it still sounds like there's this theme throughout that people could take away of simply doing one small thing Thing at a time so and starting it sounds like starting with thought so let's get into the power of our narratives and you know one of the things you and I have talked about in the past that I think is really interesting is your notion that our inner stories absolutely create our external experiences so 
tell me a little bit more about your thought process behind that. Yes. And this is definitely the core of my coaching philosophy. And this is something that I work with my clients on, you know, in all of our sessions, because this is what helps me every day, every moment, um, create the experiences that I want to create the intentional experiences I want to create versus just running on my default old belief uh, patterns that are already in my brain. So, yeah, I think those inner stories that we tell ourselves, um, you know, through our thoughts, what we think all day long creates our outer experiences. And I also like to call that our, my results. So the results I create in my life, my outer experiences, and those results all stem from my thoughts. Um, so I like to explain to my clients that the results that they create in their lives, whether they're good or bad, um, and I hate using good or bad, but, you know, for, for purposes of like, here are more positive results, here are negative results. So like be it a certain weight, a certain relationship, a certain career. I always like to tell them that it always starts with their thoughts or their stories, or like we've been talking about our narratives that are streaming through our minds all day long. And when I tell this to my clients, some of them push back and they're like, wait a minute, that can't be true. <laughs> what if someone dies or what if it rains on my wedding day? How does my inner dialogue or my narrative, you know, or my thoughts create those types of negative experiences? Right. And I'm like, I thank you for pushing back <laughs> because I agree with them. The fact that someone dies um, or the fact that it rains on your wedding day is totally out of your control. That is not something that you create and no amount of thoughts can cause someone to die or cause a thunderstorm on your wedding day. Um, but I explained to them that it's because these types of events are circumstances which are totally outside of their control, like the past, like someone dying. And what I do then is say that your inner dialogue or your narrative about those types of circumstances, about somebody dying, about the fact that it rained on your wedding day, is what will ultimately create their outer experiences of those events for them. So by that, I, I try to explain that your feelings, your actions, and your results all stem from their thoughts about that circumstance. Um, and I hope I, <laughs> I think that kind of explained it, but we kind of go over that again and again and again, because, you know, most people do think that, you know, their circumstances, there's nothing they can do about them. And I always say, yes, that is out of your control. But what is in your control is the narrative about those circumstances, which does ultimately cause the results in your life, your experience of those outside circumstances. Absolutely. And I, I think that that's a beautiful explanation of the why. Why our inner narratives absolutely affect our, our external experience. Let's get into the how. How do we yeah. go about figuring out what our narratives even are? I mean, let's start there. So not even looking at one particular situation of, oh, shit, it's my wedding day. It's raining. <laughs> um, how do I work through this with my inner narrative? But like just stepping back and looking at it from an even bigger picture, which is what is my narrative currently and how do I figure that out? Right, right. And that's perfect. That's a perfect place to be when you come to coaching. And that's exactly where my clients are when they come to me. Um, so the practice really starts at increasing their awareness of their thoughts, increasing their awareness of their narratives. And to do this, the how, if you will, <laughs> is by practicing being that non-judgmental watcher. And what I do with my clients is I... Um, try to exemplify for them this non-judgmental watcher by holding space for them so that they can look at their thoughts. We can look at the thoughts together with curiosity instead of with judgment. Um, because most of us, all we do all day is we have a thought, you know, we judge it. We're not looking at it with curiosity, uh, with compassion. We just see the thought and then we judge it. So really the practice begins with practicing being that non-judgmental watcher and holding the space for yourself. But at the first step, most people don't know how to do this or they're just not practiced in it. So that's what a coach is for. And that's what I would be for. You know, in the beginning, it's just holding that space for them. 
And so once the client's able to just see that their thoughts are what they are, they're just thoughts that are being offered by her brain in any given situation. What I try to explain to them is like they're unintentional thoughts or thoughts that haven't necessarily been consciously chosen by them. Then we can really start examining them. And again, this is with that non-judgmental awareness to see what they are creating in their lives. And so once you begin to be more aware of what certain thoughts are creating in your life, once you get that awareness, then you go about the process of possibly changing those thoughts or changing the narrative so that you can create the types of experiences that you want. So it is definitely more of a step-by-step process and it is a practice like anything else. It's practicing being that non-judgmental watcher. So, okay. Do you mind if we walk through an example? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I want to see how this works. So, okay. So say I have a thought that is, say I'm trying to lose some weight or, you know, I've recognized I have an unhealthy relationship with food and it's been a stressful week at work. It's Thursday evening. I'm about to make dinner and I have this thought, oh, you could just order pizza. And I recognize that, okay, that this is an unhealthy thought. I don't, you know, I, I have a healthy meal in the fridge. That's where I should be going, not to the phone to order a pizza. But mm-hmm. then the thought keeps coming up because I think that as we try to not think about things we think about them even more and I know that that's not what you're coaching to you're not saying don't not think about it right Um, right. interact with it differently so what would you say to me at that point so you 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 told me the thought oh you know in your head you could just order a pizza Mm -hmm. and so that's the thought we want to get curious about and it's funny because the next words out of your mouth were something that was judging the thought and like I said before, we want to get into that space of a non-judgmental watcher. So instead of judging that thought, oh, you could just order a pizza instead of being like, oh, God, Megan, that thought, why, why we can't just order a pizza? I'm going to get fat. Oh, terrible. And then when you start thinking those thoughts, then you get into this more negative space. And what do we do when we're feeling uncomfortable, negative negativity? We start to uh, what I like to call buffer, which is. We start to try to avoid that negativity. And usually we avoid that negativity with things that are negative, like eating a bunch of pizza or, you know, doing things that aren't in line with our goal of losing weight. So it's like you could just order pizza. That's actually a thought that you could be totally curious about. So that's what I would do. I'd get curious with my client. So why is it a problem when you think the thought you could just order pizza? So why is that even a problem? And then, you know, we would kind of go from there. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, so if we're reverse engineering it and I say, <laughs> yes. oh, I could just order pizza instead, um, then the next thought would be maybe more along the lines of, well, why do I want to order pizza? Asking questions, trying to understand it. Right, getting curious about it. So am I hungry? Why do I want to order a pizza? Like is today Friday and today's pizza day and this is like, a thought that always comes up on Friday. Yeah, just really getting curious and non-judgmental, and so that you don't fall into that more negative space where you're gonna wanna do the thing, which is order the pizza and eat it. <laughs> so the more you can stay in that like neutral, um, non-judgmental space, the more you're gonna be able to figure out, okay, let's get maybe you know to a, a better thought that won't lead to ordering the pizza, if that's what you want, right? If your goal is to lose weight, and not to order the pizza, um, that's kind of where it'll take you. So yeah, getting curious. So, you know, why am I thinking this thought? You could just order pizza. Oh, it's Friday. You know, this is when I think this thought. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's Saturday night and I like to order pizza. And then being like, well, I can decide whether or not I want to actually order the pizza. And maybe I do. Maybe today I do want to order a pizza and, you know, sit on the couch and do that. Or maybe I don't you know, maybe I don't want to order it. Maybe I do want to have a salad and then you can change it from there. Hmm. So it's really getting to the root of what do I really want versus what I've maybe conditioned myself to think that I want. Yes. And that's definitely one part. And something I kind of left out is, you know, you can ask yourself the question, what was I feeling just before I thought the thought you could just order a pizza? You know, that thought came up because maybe I was feeling, I don't know, bored. (laughs) I mean, it could have just been boredom 
or maybe something happened at work and I had this kind of uncomfortable feeling in my body. But since I'm not really in touch with my feelings, I don't know what it is. And my brain knows that if I'm feeling a little bit uncomfortable on a Friday night, ordering a pizza is a quick and easy solve for that emotion. Um, so yeah, that's more of the curiosity. And when you can bring that level of awareness to that thought, then you can decide whether or not you want to go, go through with ordering the pizza, if that makes more sense. Absolutely. And I think the interesting thing about this work is, you know, to go back a little bit to what we talked about, which is, you know, really one small step at a time. Um, Mm -hmm. I've moved through this work with you and, you know, in, in past work that I've done and, you know, sometimes we'll go back to the food example. I hope we're not making everyone super hungry. Um, but we'll go back to the pizza. Sometimes you do order the pizza. And, you know, that's okay because you still have made progress. Because the difference is you've got down to maybe the root cause or at least started showing that awareness and asking yourself questions and approaching mm-hmm. it from a curious place rather than basically on autopilot ordering it without really thinking and then just feeling like crap after you were more methodical and thoughtful about the decision and even though maybe ultimately you didn't make the decision um mm-hmm. that you would have liked to have made in retrospect you still shifted something and maybe the second time you have that thought you interact with it differently and you make a different choice. So it's definitely a process, as you said. It doesn't happen overnight. And I love this idea of starting with awareness and really giving yourself the space to move through change in, I think, a much more loving and patient way. What role do you think our culture plays in the narrative that we create for ourselves? So we've done a lot of talking about how we personally can practice awareness of our thoughts and potentially Mm -hmm. or ultimately change an action based on that awareness. What role do you think culture and the people around us play in our ability to make positive changes and have healthier narratives? Yeah, I definitely think, especially for women, uh, a huge role that culture plays in creating our narratives And I say, especially for women, because we're raised in a patriarchal society. Um, And also, I I would add a capitalistic society. So women are raised with, you know, a host of patriarchal and capitalistic narratives that lead to things uh, that I deal with in my coaching all the time. People pleasing, uh, perfectionism, imposter syndrome. Uh, One of my favorites, compare and despair thought feeling patterns. I deal with that a lot. Um, but yeah, that the patriarchal society, you know, women are taught to base their worth on how a man perceives them physically and their ability to please men. Um, and so like in my compare and despair example, women are constantly, you know, you go into a room and you're comparing yourself to other women um, in order to evaluate, you know, your worth based on these comparisons and the comparisons feel terrible. Um, you know, and the reason they feel terrible is because we already have this belief system in place that we're not enough, that we're not good enough. And, um, that combined with, um, it's a concept I like to teach about confirmation bias. And you mentioned that earlier, kind of the science behind it. Um, you know, our brains are always scanning to look for evidence to support our beliefs. We're always scanning to confirm you know, what our belief system is. So when you combine the fact that the belief system we have in place based on that patriarchal society is that, you know, as women, we're not good enough and our brains scanning or looking for evidence to support that belief, these two things combined mean that we're just going to see the ways that we're different. So we can use this evidence to prove how unworthy we are, you know, how we don't match up to someone. So I think the patriarchy for sure is, um, one of the roles that culture plays in our narratives. But I also have been kind of dabbling and doing some research about how capitalism um, also kind of drives our narratives. So we live in a capitalistic society. And even though it's economically, it's like an economic driven sphere, this actually leaks into our personal sphere. So we are taught to regard competitiveness as normal. Um, and this means we're constantly comparing ourselves to, you know, for my example before other women to see where we stand, 
We're taught to judge our differences as better or worse. Again, this comes back to a capitalistic, um, you know, a, a, we're taught to basically commodify ourselves as something basically to be bought and sold, just like capitalism. Um, so like, for example, the dating marketplace, thinking of ourselves as commodities in a marketplace actually exasperates the tendency to think we're just a collection of parts, um, to be evaluated and to be judged um, based on our appeal to other people. So yeah, the patriarchal society, the capitalistic society, I mean, um, all of these plays a huge role in our narratives. And a lot of it is just so unconscious. We have no idea that this is kind of running in the back of our brains all the time. And we're making, you know, having a lot of thoughts and feelings and taking actions from these beliefs that aren't serving us. Um, yeah, so I definitely think that culture plays a huge role. And that, that's just the culture at large. You know, I didn't even dive into the culture of like our little micro families and then, you know, our friends and that culture and all of it is shaping our narratives. Yeah. And I think it gets really challenging. I mean, we're interacting in relationships every day from a relationship as intimate as one with a partner to mm -hmm. relationships with colleagues and your barista at the coffee shop. Mm -hmm. And with all of these interactions, with social media, with the news, with all of these external influences, um, you know, how do we, even if we get to a place where we can practice objective awareness on our thoughts, we can um, mm -hmm. begin to change some of our reality through our thoughts, how do you protect this precious space of our own inner narrative with all of these external factors constantly gnawing at you to some degree. Yes. And again, if I could bottle the answer, <laughs> <laughs> I would, but um, yeah, to protect the con like, uh, yeah, to protect ourselves. So I, I don't know if protect is the right word here because it's kind of implying that we always have to be on the defensive mm -hmm. or on guard, you know, anytime somebody says something that could trigger us in our brains. Um, so yeah, I don't know about protect, um, but I don't think we have to be afraid if it happens. Um, because, you know, if you do have these self-coaching tools, then you know that you are always in control of how you are going to respond, um, you know, with your thoughts and your feelings and your actions to when somebody does rattle you a little bit. And I always like to tell my clients, there's a moment before we take action you know, where we can pause, you know, it's right, it's right in between the feeling and the action where we can pause and step back and get in that watcher mode and decide how we want to respond. And a lot of the times I, I definitely work a lot with relationships with my clients, you know, people are like, okay, well, should I create a boundary? You know, do I have to create this boundary with someone so I can protect myself? And I, I rarely advise my clients on creating boundaries because I really don't think they're necessary most of the time. Um, sometimes they are, um, but most of the work I do with clients centers around the concept that another person can't cause you to feel anything. Mm -hmm. The only thing that causes your feelings are your thoughts, not the other person's behavior. And this definitely kind of floors some people because they're like, no, they just need to do this thing. And then, you know, I get to feel this way. And I'm like, no, no, this is, this is actually really good news because you're ultimately then in control because you're in control of your thoughts. Um, and I always try to stress to them, this isn't just an intellectual idea. The concept actually can, and it does play out in real life. And, you know, I am definitely someone who has been using these tools and having it play out in real life because I practice it on myself. And because I can do it with myself and believe in these concepts and practice them, you know, I'm able to help my clients do it in their lives. You know, it's really interesting that you challenge the word protect and, you know, the idea of boundaries, because I also feel like, you know, this idea of boundaries is so ubiquitous these days, mm -hmm. especially mm -hmm. on the heels of the pandemic, where people have made more space for their personal lives or a better work-life balance or um, you know, I've talked to a lot of people who are, are putting up boundaries and different relationships. And I actually agree. I, I think it's, you know, almost living in a bubble to put ourselves yeah. in a space where we are refusing to interact with anyone that we deem as quote unquote toxic. 
Um, mm-hmm. And if we get philosophical about it, we, we can go even deeper to say, who are we to judge? Um, because that's really what it is, is for us to say someone else is toxic is, is truly judgment and almost an egotistical um, notion. And so I think coming back to this idea of being able to exist in this world and be fully lucid and connected and Mm -hmm. through our narrative and through awareness, being able to create our experience or being able to experience things in a way that feels good um, is a much different tool and tactic than Mm -hmm. building a you know, steel box around yourself so that you never have to feel anything that's not, um, you know, within your quote unquote boundaries. So I think it's a really interesting stance. Um, and like, right. I agree. And I would just add that, yeah, you mentioned the, and I put air quotes around toxic people <laughs> because I get that a lot. They're like, well, how do I, I just need to avoid this toxic person. <laughs> And I always remind them, I'm like, this toxic person is your opportunity to grow. It's your opportunity because it's triggering something in you that may need to be healed. It's triggering something and I'm getting a little woo woo, but that's my, that's kind of my philosophy on it. Like those people are in your life for a reason. And when they start triggering things within you, that's your opportunity to look at those things and to sit in that discomfort and to work through it. Instead of just being around cheery people all day, I mean, that's boring. You know, there's nothing to work on there. But those toxic people, I really do feel like those are the gifts. And it's kind of the same thing with, you know, any kind of tragedies that happen in your life. They actually really do turn out to be gifts because they really do crack you open. They really do open you up to, you know, the the, the things that are festering inside. Um, like you see, you know, the judgment or all of that. And, and you, you can't just protect yourself your whole life. You can't put up boundaries for everybody because you just won't be letting anybody in. The goal is to really open yourself up to everything and know that you can handle these quote toxic people or, you know, your mother saying critical words to you. And, you know, cause people are going to do it. You're going to, you know, people, especially adults, adults get to do what they want to do. And um, you can't put up a boundary every time somebody says something critical to you. Instead, you know, I always try to um, remind my clients it's just an opportunity. And to see things that way, to shift your perspective, to see those kind of people as an opportunity, I think really does help. You know, it does serve them in their evolution. Yeah, and it creates a resiliency that I I don't think we can build for ourselves as a, a team of one. Um, but being able to move through what we might consider challenging or hardships, being able to move through them and learn from them, you know, going all the way back to the beginning of our conversation and looking yeah. at how you, you know, you definitely had some challenges, but then you found a way to reframe and identify your triggers and come back in a much fuller way. So. Mm-hmm. What would you say, if any, are the tools for setting up your inner dialogue in such a way that even if something triggers you or catches you off guard, you're able to, like you said, that space in between something happening and your reaction, you're able to make the next best choice. Right. And again, I think it goes back to that awareness. And I think the majority, when I started doing this work um, with a coach, um, you know, situations like that would come up and I, and I, you know, for the most part, handle it terribly. You know, I would, I would react, I would, or, you know, something would happen. I'd get in a fight with my, um, you know, my mom or, you know, my husband would say something to me and I would kind of recoil and, and not do my best um, reacting to that. So that's what I would take to my coach. And we would really, you know, examine it so that I could get that awareness so that the next time, and I think, you know, we had been talking about this, the next time something like that happens, I have just a little bit more awareness of what result I'm creating when I react in a certain way to, you know, if somebody says something to me, you know, something critical or, you know, gives me a look that kind of, starts those thoughts and the feelings. Um, so yeah, again, it's kind of looking backwards. And then once you get that practice, 
um, you actually, and this is just like a natural thing that happens, you start practicing it in the moment. So when you're in that moment, when somebody does say something to you that may be critical or something you take offense to, you kind of shift into that watcher mode and you kind of can see your thoughts. It's, it's kind of a surreal experience, but the more you practice it, the more this happens. Um, and then you can see, okay, if I do this, if I respond in this way, this is what I'm going to create. I'm going to create more disconnection from my spouse. I'm going to create more hostility. And that's not what I want to create. I want to create more love, more connection. And so when, you know, like I mentioned earlier, you get good at pausing, when you get good at pausing in, you know, what I call like your model, your thought, feeling, action uh, model, you can pause there and really decide in that moment how you want to respond. And it depends on, you know, whatever the circumstance is, but at least it's now in your control. You haven't left it up to whatever default response is in your brain. So it's kind of working through that. And so once you're at that level, then the next level, and, you know, I still work on this, is kind of more future focused. How do I want to show up in this circumstance? You know, I have this party coming up and I know this person's going to be there and I know they're going to push my buttons. How do I want to show up when, you know, they will, I know they will, um, you know, push my button in this way. And then you can do the work before you can do that intentional work of how you want to show up in that moment. And you practice that before you go to the event. I love that. And I was actually going to ask you that question, but you answered it. And so um, what I wanted to know is, do you in advance of how you are going to respond to something, decide how you want to respond to it? But it sounds like first you step into that space of practicing objective awareness around your thoughts. Mm-hmm. And then you move into that state of, okay, futuristically thinking, if mm-hmm. this happens, then I would like to envision myself responding in this way. So it really yeah. is a, a process. Yes. Yeah. And I want to say it's, you know, three steps. I mean, it's not as easy or as simple as that, but if we did want to like break it down, it is kind of the three step. And the first step is, you know, generating awareness after the fact, And that's when you can be like, oh, man, I really messed up there. I shouldn't have responded that way. Then you can kind of go over, you know, what were you thinking? What were you feeling? What actions were you taking? And what was that result that you created in your life? So that, you know, stage two is I'm in the moment. Someone's saying something to me in the moment. And I could be like, oh, this is this is the part where they say this that makes me go off the rails, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the third step would be, okay, I know this is going to happen or something, you know, similar could happen at an event. And then you practice that the intentional thoughts before that event. So yeah, it it is a practice, but it does get easier. And the more and more you practice, the easier it becomes. And it really is just so life altering the way you you can show up in your life and the experiences and the reality you can create. What would your advice be to someone who is struggling with anxiety or any type of negative emotion right now? So they're really deep into the muck of it, and it would be nearly impossible for them to step back and, and observe their thoughts from a, from a great space. How would you help kind of coax them out of that place? Yeah, I mean, if I had a client who came to me and was struggling with anxiety, Um, you know, I have had clients come to me, you know, with, with COVID anxiety and that, that, you know, is a real, you know, real anxiety. Um, but what I do is, you know, I try to lead them down the path of, you know, determining what, what is it that you think is making you feel anxious or making you feel that negative emotion. And I get, you know, using the COVID anxiety, the client will say something like, well, COVID, obviously, (laughs) And that when I tell them, I'm like, no, COVID isn't causing your anxiety. Um, Or if it's like a job, a stressful job, you know, your job's not causing your anxiety. And uh, going back to COVID, you know, I always point out that whatever your circumstances are, it's not causing your anxiety. It's your thoughts about the circumstance. So if I can just get them to that one little stage of awareness, it gives them that immediate relief, that immediate sense of relief, because when you can step back and think about what thoughts are causing that anxiety, 
versus being like, well, I have no control over COVID. That makes me feel so out of control. I, it gets that immediate sense of relief, maybe just for a minute, maybe for a couple seconds. And then they go back to thinking the thoughts like, oh no, COVID's terrible, you know, creates more anxiety. But it's that just that brief little minute where you can get that relief. And if you can keep doing that, keep reminding yourself that it's not COVID. It's not the job. It's not the thing external to you. It's what I'm making it mean. And what I'm making it mean are the thoughts I'm thinking about it, the narrative that I have about it. And just that will give a little bit of relief and a little bit more control over your life. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What a great place to wrap. I, I mean, and it's almost like it's stepping into a meditative state where you're constantly coming back to your breath. Here, it's constantly coming back to that awareness of thought. With that, and in conclusion, Molly, if you could have our viewers walk away with one tip or tool from this conversation, what would it be? Yeah, it would be that we are, we have so much more control over our lives than I think a lot of us think we do. And, you know, once we make that shift to really taking that power back from the external world and really taking it, taking responsibility, taking emotional responsibility for, you know, your experience of the world, um, and you can do that. And, you know, with the help of a coach, um, with some self-coaching, you really can get better and better at practicing that and creating the experiences that you want in this, in this world, in your life. Um, yeah, just really being able to take your power back and knowing that you always have that control. Molly, thank you so much for being with us today. I loved this conversation because you just have so many great things to, to bring to the table and to bring to our viewers. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Human Method Podcast. I am Megan Bond, and if you are interested in learning more about personal or organizational transformation, I would love to connect with you. You can reach me today at www.thebondconsultinggroup.com. I also want to thank Ayla Zimmerman for design and promotion of not just the human method, but our Bond Consulting Group site as well. She is a kick-ass designer, so please check out our site at thebondconsultinggroup.com. Sign up for our newsletter so that you can receive great content from us. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss our next episode. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme for the show, as always, is to be a little bit better each day. So remember, be better today.